Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. It's chapter six of the Tox Talks. I like these ones. I'm excited. Yeah, well, last one got an amazing response, Dr. Michael Kane. Well, if it didn't, I'd be worried. It's like the, the god or the king of tox. But uh, today we're going on a different angle. Uh, we've recently had a new toxin released here in Australia and globally just before we got it in Australia. So what's it called? Latibo. 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 But it's not called Latibo in other countries. No, so it's not. why don't we welcome our guest and then we can get into all of the nomenclature of Ooh. this new toxin. Um Good evening, good morning, Professor Hack, all the way from the UK. How are you, Said? Yeah, I'm good. It's good morning because uh, I had to get my son up and get him ready for for nursery. So oh. uh, that was a bit manic. So mornings always start the same way, Monday to Friday. So yeah, yeah. I'm orientated in time space and place <laughs> at the moment so glad to speak to you guys well we appreciate you coming. To the discussion yeah absolutely now why don't you you know i i've not had the pleasure of meeting you david certainly hasn't met you so why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners uh tell us about you know obviously what your your day-to-day job is what your maybe your background is and what do you you know who do you represent so my name is professor side hack uh, my background is originally from guy's hospital uh, in London, so our sister school is Johns Hopkins in the United States. Um, I trained at some of the major institutions in the UK from the Hammersmith, Brompton, and Guy's hospitals. Then spent time at Imperial College. I was a medical research council clinical training fellow. And then got an opportunity as a registrar to go to the United States and study and work at uh, Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, my uh, late uh, but very dear friend and mentor, uh, Professor Thomas Force, was the guy that really guided me and opened my eyes to how we should view science and how it applies to the clinical scenario. Mm. And in that time, I I collaborated and did work with the... uh, Cutaneous Biology Research Program there. So that got me really interested in skin aging and inflammation. I published a lot of papers. Uh, I was an award-winning scientist. I was AstraZeneca Young Scientist of the Year in New England and various other things. Uh, And then I decided to come back to the United Kingdom. And my love of aging, aesthetic medicine, led me to chair a number of meetings in the UK on uh, aging so uh, uh, and gerontology and from there i was also 
uh, headhunted and worked with two biopharmaceutical companies. So I had a good science core as well. I didn't give up my clinical practice, and I built that, continued to build that, both in the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland. And that's where I met my wife, uh, Alexandra. Um, I was actually giving a, an anatomy lecture at Croke Park, famous for rugby yeah. and Gaelic football. And um, then I just sort of continued both on the biopharmaceutical clinical side and started to also look more deeply at the, the basis of what we're doing with our patients, not just simply seeing what's on the label, but trying to understand how we can take this frontier further. I was formerly in the NHS, no longer privately uh, practicing. And I found there were a lot of constraints in the NHS, which we, I didn't find in the private sector. And I found that many of my colleagues were really cutting edge in their approach and were changing things so dynamically that some of their important observations were being ad adopted into mainstream medicine. Mm. And that was really gratifying. So I've continued in that. Uh, I've worked uh, in part with uh, Rothschilds and PwC in the, in the past on various projects. And um, where I am today is I, uh, apart from overseeing a number of clinical trials and being a co-PI on several trials, uh, I've published a lot um, as high a profile as nature medicine. Um, but I've also tried to develop other areas of aging uh, therapeutics. Uh, so I've developed a drug that we will hopefully aim to be in clinical trials by the end of the year, which will be focusing on the aging process and trying to uncouple uh, age-related disorders from aging, as we see it. Um, I'm currently a key opinion leader for a number of uh, major groups. Uh, from UGEL, UGEL Aesthetics, Chroma, Pharma, uh, as well as uh, Allegan, part of Abvi and Galdama. Wow. Fantastic. What a CV. Wow. That's a uh, gold, David. Very, very extensive, impressive history. Yeah. Now, um, why don't we actually define what we mean by KOL? And I understand that you sit on the advisory boards for at least one of those companies. So basically, what do you do? I, I know because I, I act in that capacity just for Allegan Aesthetics. But what does it mean to the listeners who, who don't really understand that role? The key opinion leader, I mean, in the, in the more recent uh, times, we're finding that lots of people are calling themselves key opinion leaders when they're really... When you uh, and one of my colleagues put it perfectly, and he said, "If you want to be a key opinion leader, what contribution have you made to your discipline here in aesthetics? Have you published anything mm -hmm. that's novel or could better educate your peers? And have you made any major strides in, in that in terms of clinical observation, case studies, and and publications?" I think that really tells you what a key opinion leader should be in terms of their background, highly experienced and well-versed in not just the product that they're talking about, but others, yeah. and be able to compare and contrast them. Um, so I've sat on and continued to sit on a number of advisory boards, global advisory boards. Um, for example, for Allegan, I'm, I'm going to be presenting and doing some work on neocollagenesis. Uh, with Ibsen, I 
uh, was sitting on two different boards, one on their new innovation products, as well as their uh, clinical trial um, uh, development program. And then same uh, one would say of Galderma and of Chroma more recently and Ugel working with Latibo and looking at the clinical rollout of that, as well as polynucleotide treatments, which mm-hmm. are the rage uh, and um, doing some amazing things with patients now in a safe manner, but with reproducible and clinically meaningful results. So with all of what I do, I analyze what's presented to me, critique it, determine whether or not the results that are being purported to me or reported to me are absolute or could one look at them differently. And I'm always asking the question, I won't be satisfied with just what's presented to me, but foremost and uppermost in my mind is, is it safe? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And because patients uh, come to see one and they're spending their hard-earned savings, and they want something that really does work. And with that patient-doctor relationship, um, that's established over time, but that can only really be fortified if what you're doing on an advisory board capacity is transferring that information to the patient in a, in a way that really does, does transfer properly. Um, and the patients appreciate it, and you can provide them with new innovations and maybe uh, alternative ways of treating some of the steadfast things that we see day to day. Yeah. Such okay. a good point. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to toxins, we've, we've uh, had them for quite a number of years, probably close to, well, probably close to 20 years now, yeah. maybe potentially more. Yeah. And for the longest time, there was really, particularly in Australia here, only, only two players on the market. And in the last few years, we've seen a number of new products emerge a lot of off-label treatments start to develop, people starting to almost fall in love again with toxins and, and finding out different ways they can use it to sort of not only chase lines and wrinkles, but to focus on the shape of the face and the lower face in particular. So keen to get your thoughts on how that journey has sort of transpired and, and the sort of transition from very rudimentary applications to more advanced treatments and where we're in now, which is a plethora of, of products entering the market. Yeah, I mean, the the origins of toxins go back uh, centuries, but in a clinical aesthetic um, scenario, as you're, you're right, um, David, is, it's been here for about 20 plus years with the advent of botulinum toxin firstly, and then botulinum with the different um, descriptive labels on those. And originally, they were being used on in, in medical terms for the treatment of dystonias, torticolis, and uh, as well as uh, blepharospasm and strabismus. And then, from the observations of gene analysis or others, um, with the likes of Alan Scott, they realized that there was a potential aesthetic implication here with a reduction of the lateral canthal lines that they were observing. And originally when they presented this work, they were poo-pooed and ridiculed to some extent. And I remember Jean saying that, that people were saying, well, why don't you have a better use for for your medical qualifications than looking at aesthetic use of, of, of a neurotoxin? 
And we've come full circle with that, with um, our realization that the use of neurotoxins have a fundamental psychological well-being impact on patients with a reduction in the social psychological burden that they may be facing, apart from the positive aesthetic impact that they're also uh, achieving. So if we look at all of the different types of toxin, yes, there has been a new evolution. And the evolution has really been driven by, I would say, trying to innovate the manufacturing and purification process to try and obtain something that is possibly better or as good as, possibly cheaper, um, safe and predictable. And different companies have looked at that in, a, in different ways from their manufacturing protocol. The gold standard, and they cover 80% of the global aesthetic neurotoxin market would be onobotulinum toxin made by Allergan, mm-hmm. uh, a, a company of Abbey. Um, and then the, the, the second and third would be the likes of uh, Botulax uh, made by Ugel uh, Aesthetics in Kushan in South Korea. They're the, I believe they're the their their principal ingredient is Letibotulinum toxin. They're the number one in South Korea and they're the second largest globally. Why that's an important statistic to understand is uh, South Korea in particular produce about half of all the world's neurotoxins. Uh, and that's a testament to their quality assurance and quality control, um, but also their innovation. And they have, and, and this is where there is room for other toxins within the market based on what type of target population you're particularly looking at, what type of effect you're trying to achieve. Frozen, formerly, now more natural, uh, longer lasting toxins, uh, earlier onset toxins. In the future, there will be what I would define as hybrid toxins, which will last very long or shorter. There's a liquid toxin, in Elysians. So all of them are there for different reasons. Ultimately, they're trying to maximize efficacy and safety profiles for the patient. Um, and they're trying to achieve this through, as I said, different manufacturing protocols, whether they're freeze drying, vacuum drying, um, whether they're utilizing a 900 kilodalton protein complex or a light heavy chain uh, um, um, complex in the form of incubotulinum, which is devoid of complex in protein. Um, and you can have your viewpoint based on the clinical data, the scientific data that's emerged. But ultimately, whatever toxin you choose to use on your patients and your patients are wanting, it has to be clinically evidence-based and there has to be substantive clinical evidence. And the major players in that, in terms of clinical trials and their investments, have been Allegan, um, Ipsen, uh, UGEL, and Mertz. And then you come through other neurotoxin producers who have fewer clinical trials, but they're, they're gathering momentum and pace, such as Prabotulinum and Daxi. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, a brand called Botulax, which 
to be clear to the listeners, is basically the same as Latibo. Latibo is sort of a, a new branded name. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, when I look at these things and people talk about, well, it's, it's letibotulinum toxin. I said, yes, absolutely. It is letibotulinum toxin. But irrespective of how you look at a toxin, whether it's ONA, ABLE, so ABLE can be in the form of Dysport or Azalur, um, and you've got Botulax or Letibo, is the manufacturing uh, line. Yeah. And that goes through a, a, a process of bioreactor fermentation, production, and then acid precipitation and purification. And then some of them will choose either a freeze-dried process or vacuum-dried process. When you look at uh, Botulax and Latibo, they're, they're produced in different uh, vial forms, so either a 100-unit or a 50-unit bar. And people say to me, that doesn't make a difference. And I say, well, it may make a difference because you've got protein or in, in, in one vial, or it may not. And um, that's when I ask the question to manufacturers to tell me, is there a difference? And then I look at the clinical trial data. Um, and if, if you imagine, if you put a, a lot of protein into one, uh, into one unit or one vial, or you've got a lot less, does that impact the long-term stability of the product or not? I'm not saying it does. But they, they had the experimental evidence to determine that. And I've gone through this whole manufacturing process with the drug that I'm developing, where you've got 30 scientists on the line, and they talk about pH variation. And we're talking about 0.1 or 0.2, uh, what excipients you're using, how much you put into a vial. All of that will have a determinating impact on the amount of active neurotoxin if you compare all of the neurotoxins that we've mentioned, the light chain, which targets uh, SNAP25, the synaptosomal-associated um, 25-kilodalton protein target, from the paper published by, um, uh, uh, it was actually Walsh, um, that showed that he was the, the head PI that the activity, that's the enzymatic, enzymatic activity of the light chain, was equivalent in all. There's no difference. Right. So therefore, the manufacturing protocol then will define, as well as the presence of certain excipients mm. of how the uh, patient reacts. Yeah. I guess, I mean, that was fascinating, by the way. I'd never really thought about it like that. But I guess the take-home point for your average listener is, Latibo or Botulax, if you want to call it that, has been around for a reasonable amount of time. I think since 2009 or something. Yeah, 13, 14 years. Yeah. yeah. 25 million vials using Latibo. That gives me reassurance as opposed to something that's been used maybe for a shorter period of time with far fewer patients. And what's also important when one looks at whether it's Latibo, Botulax, or others is, well, in the clinical trials, what sort of age group did they look at? Well, they looked at 18-year-olds up to 75, and they included 75-year-olds. Yeah. And none of the previous trials really did that in a, and that's in a double-blind placebo-controlled manner. They may have done it off-label, or they may have looked at it in an open-label phase. That's important. 
because age-related changes can impact the longevity or the efficacy of the drug um, in terms of outcome. The second was that their USP would be, for me, that without changing the dose, you would get significant positive efficacious outcome in male patients. So we know that they have a, a higher muscle mass in the glabella complex in particular. And with that, um, you would expect a shorter duration of action, and that wasn't seen. Mm, right. So that, coupled with the fact that it, it, it is the number one selling neurotoxin in South Korea, which is the, I'd say, the forerunner of innovation in the aesthetic field globally, they've used it in other areas, for example, masteric reduction which they have more of a problem of in the uh, South Korean, South Asian population, hypertrophy of the calves, re reducing that, or even shoulders. Yeah. So there's that, and, and, and the fact that it, it works um, is, is great for both uh, an aesthetic, aesthetic practice perspective, but also medical. Right. So it's been around for a long time, but obviously fairly new here in Australia. I certainly hadn't heard of it yeah. before, and I've been in the industry for close to 20 years. So... I guess a lot of people might be wondering, what can you tell us about Hugel as a company? I mean, you mentioned that they've got amazing quality control and quality assurance, but it'd be interesting to know from your perspective, you know, who is the company, what do they stand for, and what do consumers um, and providers need to know about the company? Hugel um, are a global biopharmaceutical company. They've had over 20 plus clinical trials on aesthetic neurotoxin analysis. They are the leading brand in with botulinum in South Korea. As we mentioned, Leti botulinum has been around for over 13, 14 years with over 25 million valves uh, produced within their um, global um, uh, directorship as a non-executive director they have as chairman uh, Brett Saunders so he was the former CEO of Allegan I mean he's just incredible as uh, as an innovator and leader in his field so they have some of the best corporate people there but they also have fundamentally um a high level of quality control and manufacturing with multiple manufacturing plants globally. So they're not just sort of taking a license off of a, a, an external manufacturer. They manufacture and put their, their name where it matters. So that to me is very important. Um, they are also, um, they also have an arm, Eugel Aesthetics in North America, Australia, and soon to be in New Zealand if it's not already there. And they are led so ably and uh, well by James Hartman, who, again, is has extensive uh, experience within the aesthetic in industry and is a true innovator in his own right with the likes of Bob Bennett and others. So you've got people there throughout the their, ex their expansion globally, not only of top brands, which have long-standing clinical evidence behind them, but a people, uh, uh, both corporate and at the sales level, that really feel passionately about what they do. For me as a practitioner, I want any uh, product 
to be able to go back to the manufacturers or the producers and be accountable and to provide me with support or my patients with support. And they do do that um, in, 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 in such such quantities that I get so reassured when I move forward. And similarly, they have a collaboration with Proma Pharma. So Proma Pharma are one of the biggest producers of hyaluronic acid globally. They've made tens of millions of syringes. And they they are a family-owned business uh, based in Austria, in Vienna, the Prince family. And I have to say, every interaction I've had with them, they are absolutely uh, fantastic people to work with. They have such integrity um, that even when I remember when a patient had an adverse event from somebody else's product, but the patient landed in one of their KOL's clinics, they were still prepared to help them hmm. and find out what had happened to them. And you don't see that that often. Yeah. So for me, it, 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 it's at every stage there is that reassurance and quality and support that we all need. Fantastic. So for the injectors who you know haven't played with Latibo yet, they haven't seen it, how, how does it come? You mentioned Botulax and Latibo come in different units. What does the vial yeah. look like? And what, what what's the preparation? What does it look like? So it's freeze-dried. It is uh, lyophilized, so you get a white powder. It can come in the UK. We have a 50-unit vial in Australia. It's a 100-unit vial. It's reconstituted in using a normal saline. Uh, you would reconstitute 100 units with 2.5 mils of normal saline. Um, it has a shelf life non-reconstituted of about 36 months if kept at 2 to 8 degrees. Uh, once reconstituted, it should be used within 24 hours. Um, when you use it, so for every 0.1 mil of your syringe when drawing up, you would be delivering uh, four units. Yeah. So if you think about the glabella complex, so you've got deep injections and preseras and the uh, depressor supercilli, medial corrugators, you would be putting in four units in each of those. So that's three injections. And then more laterally, um, on the, uh, some would say the lateral corrugators, or one would say the medial uh, fibers in the, in the midpoint of the umbicularis oculi superiorly, which is a bit of a mouthful, mm. uh, you would be uh, injecting more superficially, and again, using four units. So in total, in the glabella complex, five injections, four units per injection. That's 0.1 per injection point. And that's on label use. I was going to say, so that, that's kind of useful or, or relevant. I don't know if it was designed specifically to do this, but the original, you know, Botox trials had a five-point glabella using the same dose. So yeah. it, it gives you an a, equivalence or a currency to sort of understand how it compares. Yeah, I mean, we can go on and discuss uh, conversions, and I can talk to you about it for ages, and I won't <laughs> want to bore the audience. But 
one of the ways that you could do it clinically is by doing head-to-head non-inferiority studies. So there have been a number of non-inferiority studies conducted from as early as 2014 through to 2022 by Kim and then Muller et al. respectively, looking at the comparison between letibotulinum toxin and onobotulinum toxin. So that's totally about 700 patients in a highly controlled, uh, double-blind manner where one arm is treated with ona, another with a tebo. And what they found was at four weeks, eight weeks, which are the general comparisons, on maximal frown using a physician's assessment uh, where a meaningful result would be either zero or one, um, there was no statistical significance in either group. Um, and when you looked at treatment, emergent adverse events, again, there was no significant difference. So that would say that um, as a dose comparison clinically, they're equivalent. So just now, just to clarify, you're talking, I'm not familiar yeah. with all the different Botox and the TB. Botox and the TB, right. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yep, sorry. I did notice in that paper, and I don't want to misquote this, you'll know the paper better than I do, but the, the responder rate was something I found unusual, but maybe it's uh, common in all of the toxins, was about 76% at, at four weeks. So that sort of implies that 23% or so didn't get a response at four weeks. Yeah, no, you, you've got to look at that very carefully. So that's a composite score. Mm-hmm. So the FDA, unlike the European Union and potentially the TGA, they look at it differently. So the FDA want a composite score. That's the investigator and the subject scoring what they thought was a two-point difference. Right, okay. So it has to be a two-point difference to be meaningful for the regulator versus placebo. Yes. In the European Union, they want a two-point difference, but it's only the investigator that scored. Okay. So when you see a composite score of 70, 65, 66%, and you start comparing composite scores of other toxins, it's as good, if not better. So... That's really interesting. That's the best way of looking at it, and that's a two-point. But if you look at a one-point score, you're you're looking at ranges of 95% plus. Okay, fair. Um, you, you touched on manufacturing, but if we could just sort of talk about it, because I did understand that they, maybe I've got this wrong again, but they, they changed from vacuum-dried to freeze-dried. Uh, is that correct? And why did they do that? Yeah, so freeze-dried... So let's let's think about uh, what the meaning first of freeze-dried and vacuum-dried uh, is. So let's take, for example, freeze-dried. So unlike a vacuum-dried, there is a freezing process. That's the first thing. So think of a solid block of ice. Um, if you uh, keep the temperature either constant or low, so between minus 5 and minus 35, but you vary the pressure, okay, the vacuum, and go from between 100 to 100 uh, pascals, you can actually change the solid block without going to liquid phase into vapor, so that's sublimation, okay? That's a freeze-drying process, okay? Why is a freeze-drying process used? It maintains the integrity of the protein far better than a vacuum dry process. Because what a vacuum dry process would be is the solid block 
without freezing, we'd go into liquid. There's no sublimation. Mm-hmm. And the biggest variable there is heat. So you're applying heat. Right. And that can range from 30 to as much as 80 degrees, depending on the manufacturer. So there is this um, situation that there will be a slight change in the structure of the the, the protein from its origin. And freeze-drying, uh, based on GMP manufacturing protocols, seems to have a greater level of stability. So for the average injector out there that's had this product arrive in their clinics recently and they've got the prospect of recommending which toxin they're going to use for their patient, a lot of them are going to want to know what is the practical difference, what is their, what is it that they need to know in terms of how they educate their patients on it, patients are going to ask, why would I try this new product? This has been working for me really well. So keen to get your insights mm. on, on what the sort of practical differences are and, and sort of the best way to communicate it to patients because it's, it has sort of taken the industry here by storm because it is seemingly the most easy conversion from what is the gold standard here or the most used product, which is Botox, and providing people with an alternative. I think the most important aspect for, that I would give advice to any clinician looking at this is, firstly, with your patient in front of you, are these patients toxin-naive or not? Mm. So if they are toxin-naive, it's a straight conversion going into the, the T-ball, pretty straightforward, um, broader range, age range, no uh, sort of confusion on that. And on top of it, you can treat male patients and the older patients. So that makes it very easy for the practitioner when they're investing in buying their neurotoxin. And generally, they're buying in bulk to to, to maximize the price point, uh, unfortunately. But that is the way that the uh, suppliers uh, work. If you are looking at a patient who is already well-established with neurotoxin, such as INCO or ONA, so, so um, bocaturizum or uh, Botox, um, Again, simple conversion straight away. When we look at patients that have used onabotulinum, generally those patients are being treated with not 125, but usually 150 spaywood units or more. You have to be mindful that if you're trying to compare, and I'm talking about three areas of treatment versus just the glabella complex or some off-label work, you're using a higher dose. Of I, I think you meant ABO, not ONO. So disport. Yeah, ABO, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So ABO um, versus uh, Latibo, you're using a slightly higher amount of neurotoxin in terms of units. So you've got to be mindful of that when you are maybe converting patients over. Mm. But what I found when treating patients, and remember, we talked about the manufacturing process being slightly different. Um, that can impact not just the conformational state of the protein, but it can also affect the charge very slightly. And that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, you may say, well, why do I need to fuss about that? Well, sometimes you can get a better result if you if you try to just look a bit further and not sit back um, thinking, well, I'll just do what I always do, which is fair enough. One's choice. Um, so when I've used it for off-label use, I use a slightly different dosing pattern for the forehead compared to what I was using with Ona or with Able. And that gives me a beautiful result 
long-lasting with no brow drop. Sometimes with ABO, particularly in my patients in Northern Ireland, they have quite thin uh, frontalis muscles. Uh, they are quite sensitive to a brow drop. So it makes it more easier for me as a practitioner. For a beginner or uh, somebody who is coming through the ranks and, and getting more experience, it's more forgiving, therefore, for, for them. Uh, for someone who's very experienced, because they've got, um, I, I would explain to them, you've got high levels of predictability. They can be far, far more expansive when they're doing more intricate forms of toxic treatment when you've got to deal with levels of asymmetry or particularly difficult frontalis to, to treat. And we do get patients like that. Hmm. So I'd say Letibo is very forgiving as a, as a neurotoxin. Um, I've been using it for over a year and a quarter, a year and a half now in the UK. Uh, I use it both on-label and off-label. And I can confidently say I've had no issues. I've changed the frontalis pattern and the uh, and um, Stugel aesthetics are aware of what I've done and uh, some of the information I've passed on. If it can help practitioners, uh, absolutely, that's what we're here to do. Um, and that's going to help their outcome for their patients and ultimately get their patients coming back and knocking on the door and, and looking at other treatments. Because fundamentally, botulinum toxin is your bedrock for your aesthetic practice. If you have good, reproducible, safe results, it helps you to build from that. And that's been shown. I mean, I was I was doing I was looking at an analysis in Australia in 2020 to 2021. Um, the annual revenue was about 2.90 billion Australian dollars. With the majority from at least half about 57% due to neurotoxin use. And then the second being using hyaluronic acids, uh, dermal fillers. Over the next nine, 10 years, with a compound annual growth rate of at least 24, 26%, you're going to see that 2.98 billion going to 22.8 billion Australian. So it's huge. And what this is also telling us is that more and more patients will want the treatment as a preventative measure uh, more than anything, but also looking at other areas to treat beyond just the standard three areas that we see on the face. If I could wheel you back, uh, you mentioned on-label, off-label. So I gather mm. right now, at least in Australia, I don't know what it's like in UK and Europe, that it's on-label just for the glabella. But of course, right. you know, in our practices, we, we do you know, a lot of off-label treatment with all of our toxins. So, um, you know, what did you mean by you've changed your your, your approach to the frontalis? And, and maybe to give us context, what were you doing before with other toxins? So with other toxins, I'd follow uh, the protocol uh, published by Mark Nestor in the past from Los Angeles. Um, if you look at your frontalis and you ask your patients to raise their eyebrows, you see that the lower half or lower um, two thirds of the brow rises, yeah. and the upper third descends. Yeah. 
leading to a, a, a line of convergence. So if you stay above, the, and that was described in Mark's paper before, so I go by the line of convergence as my limiting point generally. Everything above that should be deep. Yes. So what I do is I do a, a, an injection which is parallel to the uh, depressor supercilli, medial corrugator, just distal to the frontal hairline. Again, I look at the movement and then maybe it'll be a bit further lower than that. And then in parallel to that, alongside, I look at, call it the lateral corrugator or the medial fibers of the superior orbicularis oculi. And then I'll inject in line with that, with that first injection, a second injection. And I'll use two units on either. Okay. Then at the midpoint, about a centimeter below, but above the line of convergence, I'll use four units. And so it's two, two, four. And then I'll do the same on the the uh, opposite side. Okay. And it's, it's perfect. I mean, you know, every forehead's difference, you know, strength yeah, yeah. and but, surface area, et cetera. But that but, is a general sort of baseline pattern that I would use yeah. for patients. Of course, I would assess them. Sometimes you've got patients with a, a, a very large diastasis, so their aponeurosis is very wide, so you're going to have to look differently. Sometimes you've got patients with very, very strong frontalis muscles, which are constantly active. Again, very careful, otherwise you'll get an immediate brow drop. So you may just want to just put a single series uh, above and nothing below. Um, you may have a very low um, line of convergence, and then you would look at that. And then you can look at more superficial lines above the brow, and you may be wanting to do, as one would uh, um, advise, a more superficial injection rather than the deeper injections more proximally uh, to try and limit that. Uh, some patients will want a specific shape of their brow, but this is just a general rule of thumb that you could apply and then take from. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to reference, that line of convergence was in a paper by Sebastian Cotofana, and we, you know, we did right. a podcast with him yeah. on that. So if you're interested, guys, go back yeah. to that one. Um, the reason I'm drilling it's down on... It's a great paper. It is a good it's one. It's a great paper. Um, the reason yeah, I'm drilling yeah. down on forehead is because, well, one, it's a difficult area to treat, you know, just generally, but also... You know, this is anecdote. Um, you know, whenever a new product is released and, and Latibo is the one we're talking about, you get injectors telling you all sorts of things of it, mm. it, it worked amazingly. It didn't work. It's not lasting. It's lasting longer. It's quicker. It, it, they'll just tell you every parameter under the sun. <laughs> and so it's almost like, well, well what is real? Um, and so I'm just curious yeah. to know what was your learning curve? Because, oh. you know, you've obviously got that down pat now, but maybe you didn't at the start. And then just to maybe it'll be a follow-up question but just to, and what do you think causes all of these injectors to come up with all these varying reports of different anecdotal sort of reports of differences in as jake was alluding to how quickly it responded not responding at all wearing off quicker like if you know if the studies show that they're almost identical in terms of their efficacy why do we get so much variance in anecdotal reporting uh, uh, Absolutely. Great question. If you look at who um, or the clinicians carrying out these studies, generally they're very, very experienced, but also they're in an extremely controlled environment during the administration of these uh, items. If we look at colleagues and what they're using, I've seen a trend over the last few years 
of colleagues going from using diabetic syringes, for example, the, the BD uh, microfine syringes. The problem with using that is once you've done three injections, it's blunt. So your penetration, depth penetration is going to be affected and variable. So that's the first thing, particularly when you're looking at higher density tissue. Number two, they change, they don't change the needle. Uh, they use the same needle, the 30 gauge needle. It gets blunt. Number three, they have changed the needle to use a shorter needle. So a 30 gauge four millimeter or a 30 gauge, a 31 or 32 gauge four, four millimeter. The problem with that is, and to my own detriment, I used to notice that you'd get a, a, a bit of backsplash because your extrusion force would be such. And because it's such a tight bore, it would go in, but you would get some backsplash and leakage. So therefore, you're not getting all of your toxins. So what I would do is I would count and wait and then see. And now I've stopped doing that. And I've just gone back to the 30 gauge, 13 millimeter needle, far, far better, cleaner, straightforward. And it's the one that's used in all clinical trials. So why not just continue with that? Some will say, well, my patients find it a bit sore. Well, you can do different things to try and obviate that by distracting the patient, etc., or, or even just using a, a small cold pack over the area before you start your injection. It's not going to impact the, the, the efficacy of the toxin at all. And certainly don't use lidocaine because mm. that can interfere with the toxin. Um, and that's one of the biggest differences, plus um, poor integrity in the cold chain. So a number of my colleagues, they still have satellite clinics. So they will specifically use a neurotoxin, which doesn't require a coaching, such as incobotulinum or bocaturizium, and that's fine. Um, but I'd say the main reason for all of this variability is changing dilutions. So they start to experiment with the type of dilution they use. Number two, some have swapped from normal saline to bacteriostatic. So it's less painful. Yes, because of the pH, I get that. But um, sometimes it can be due to depth, poor understanding of the anatomy and the variability of the patient and their anatomy. Sometimes the patients will be resistant to toxin, and that, that's a fact. And mm. uh, sometimes it can be lot-to-lot -lot variability. So poor quality assurance and quality control, and that's from the manufacturer. Side. Though that's very infrequent, I have to say. Um, but there's this growing trend, not of colleagues that I know, but of practitioners that I'm aware of, that they will buy neurotoxin off of the internet mm. and not get it off prescription, which is highly dangerous. I remember a Professor Andy Pickett, a good friend of mine, um, did an analysis um, looking at that and looking at the variability of the toxins that you purchase uh, off the internet and the variations quite stark from no toxin to extreme levels of toxin that could be quite dangerous. Mm, that's incredible. Yeah, crazy. Um, the placebo effect is not a phenomenon that's, uh, I think, I think it's, what I'm trying to say is that it, it's not a controversial phenomenon. People know that it's a, it's a real thing. And when you're telling patient, you, patients you're trying a new treatment on them, so, so you're saying the patients that are already familiar and have had tox treatments in the past, do you think there could be a factor there of this placebo effect 
affecting the actual reality of the outcome by patients believing it's not going to be effective or if they perceive it's going to be cheaper or it's different, that that could actually be causing a physiological difference in the outcome? I think we call it nocebo, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, nocebo. Yeah, nocebo, (laughs) placebo. Because placebo would be no treatment. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so nocebo, so there's about, it can be as high as 47% in clinical trials. Wow. Um, Jeez, that's massive. Absolutely. Because if you start to look at data and different patients will have different expectation levels. So some patients, and it's also the assessment. So when you assess, and a, a, a clear guidance, I'm sure all the practitioners listening will do this, is eyes open when you're looking at maximum levels of contraction, not eyes closed. But patients will look in the mirror, close their eyes and contract like hell and say, I didn't see an effect. Well, how can you see if there's no effect if your eyes closed? But secondly, when you ask them to keep their eyes open and do it, they say, oh, yeah, there is an effect. Yeah. So there's there's that element as well. But no, there's definitely areas where placebo Im- will impact or no, uh, no result will impact on clinical outcome. But they are few and far between. I'll tell you um, one of the biggest uh, areas of where variance is is probably likely, and you see it on Instagram, yeah. you know, you watch injectors doing their thing, and I see it a lot in Australia. I don't know where it came from, but a lot of injectors do their toxin very flush, creating a bleb rather than going mm-hmm. deep, like you said, Saeed. So, you know, if you want a toxin to affect a muscle, you need to put it in the muscle, <laughs> not, not skirting in the dermis. So I see that Absolutely. a lot. Um, I'll tell you, the, um, I was at a, an anatomy um, a demonstration up in the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, run by some dear friends of mine, uh, Jeff Downey and Mark Devlin. And what's very important is the depth uh, and the depth of how you inject Procerus, which is a deep muscle, and your, your medial corrugators is deep. Uh, you're virtually touching bone. Yeah. Uh, if you're treating the lateral canthus, I mean, it's literally a millimeter below the surface. So they, and in that context, you have to have a bled. But if you're going above the line of convergence, it's got to be deep again. And as long as you're following that, and when you're starting to do more off-label work in the lower face, you've got to be sure of your anatomy. You, and then depth does matter. Dose does matter. Some of my colleagues will reconstitute in a smaller volume because they're worried about the field of effect and spread. Um, what I say to them is if you're in the right plane and the right depth, there shouldn't be a problem. Um, but there's some certain, certain caveats that you can apply when injecting the masseter, for example. There, off-label, you actually have to have a longer needle than the 13 millimeter, 30 gauge, because you want to be touching bone with the patient um, muscles contracted ask them to relax and as you pull back you'll be injecting retrogradely so you're hitting deep medial and superficial fibers if you don't do that uh, or you don't use a long enough needle and the injection technique is incorrect then you'll get this out pouch bulging of the deep fibers by the superficial fibers of the master and I see that there was a very good study by a group in Italy, I forget the um, the uh, lead author, but they looked at that, and this was very important, and they varied the injection protocol. And this is another thing that uh, um, clinicians should look at: is 
what is the published evidence and what do they feel comfortable with in clinical practice about trying to reduce and minimize um, uh, no outcome results. Um, and that would be looking at not just their what they're using, their assessment, their injection technique, maybe their toxin. But some guys, some of my colleagues will just be very happy with one particular toxin. That's fine. But they will probably only conduct certain types of treatments. But then there will be others that will be far, far more expansive. For example, Sebastian uh, Kotwana and uh, Jeff were presenting some work on a paper that Sebastian had published uh, regarding the use of uh, toxin for the nephrotic mm. And uh, many in Brazil are using this as a preempt before using HA fillers because it can lift the face, as you might expect, because it's a depressor of the mid-face. And the, the, the way in which the muscle traverses, it goes right up into that, into the cutaneous uh, ligament superficially right up to the, the zygoma in some patients. So by using that lower border, just um, a centimeter above the, the the jawline, you can actually achieve a significant lift by neutralizing um, the, the mass, uh, sorry, the, uh, the platysma. Yeah, guys, again, we covered that paper with our podcast with Sebastian. So listen to that one again. <laughs> um, I really want to um, ask you a couple of uh sort of questions about how you do it because you said you know you've got preserved saline or normal saline needle choice and, and all the rest of it do you think there's any difference i mean i i know pain is is well almost non-existent with preserved saline but do you think there's any effect on our toxin do you think we need to be worried is it legit what do you do in your practice so in my practice i use normal saline uh in the past i was using bacteriostatic more, more so and I made a mistake once when I was very very junior and I mixed with water <laughs> <laughs> to the detriment of the patient they were in agony and I said what did I do wrong wow. and that's why I'm very very careful of how I uh, how I administer toxin um, I'm happy with using normal saline a lot of my colleagues will um, exclusively use bacteria static because they feel it's less less painful for the patient but once the patient understands, let's say if you're using it, if you've got a naive patient, naive to toxin patient, um, using normal saline is fine. But if you've got somebody who's used or has had uh, bacteria static being used, uh, they can see the difference. Yeah, so it's for up sure. to the practitioner to yeah. decide whether or not they want to change. Um, but I will just, you know, just use a very methodical approach. I always dilute my toxin yeah. to constitute it. I don't let anybody else do it. Is a prescription drug. It's my responsibility. I don't see why any clinician should give that responsibility to anybody else, particularly when they've signed the script. It's their responsibility. It doesn't take long. So I don't care how busy the clinic is. You should do that because the patient is there in your hands under your care. And, and, and therefore, it's your responsibility yeah. all the way. Don't, don't feel so bad, Said. I, I, I've seen it done accidentally with hypertonic saline before, so oh. water's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. Hypertonic? Yeah, they were for sclerotherapy. It was bad. It was bad, but anyway. yeah. um, Maybe you're the person to ask this, but you know, we talk about comparability and one unit of Latibo is, you know, at least according to the paper, equivalent to one unit of, of Botox. But 
Is it as simple as that? Because we know that the products also have, you know, different diffusion capacities and, and, and all the rest of it. So you're nodding your head in agreement, but can you explain why that's maybe a little bit simplistic? Well, we need to go back to how they, uh, they determine the LD50. Yeah. So the LD50, the dose that leads to mortality of 50% of the cohort of mice when doing a lot-to-lot assay on your product. The problem is when you start looking at the LD50 across the board from one manufacturer to the other, one, they can use different types of mice, Balpsy, CBA, Swiss, etc., etc. They can use different weights. So generally it's 18 to 20 grams, but they can be heavier, they can be lighter. They may have a mixed sex population when it should have a, a uniform one, female or male, not combined. When they determine when the chow is given for the, to the mice, when they're assessing the LD50, uh, what time of day that can impact, that can stress them, uh, stress the poor thing. So all of these factors have to be taken into consideration. And the FDA, and I don't know if you're aware of this, when they look at lot-to-lot variation uh, with neurotoxin, allow a variability of plus minus 25%. Yeah, I saw that. So in you study. can have a lot. Yeah, that's 50% of what a previous one was, or 125%, or 75 versus 125%. So you've got a variation there of 50%. But I find that incredible and because... You know, you're you're making a neurotoxin under the strictest conditions in a highly regulated, secure lab. So how can it be so different? I, I've never quite understood that, but you're right. I've seen a paper that was presented at IMCAS last year, and, and we were all scratching our heads going, wow, so I thought I had 100 yeah. units, but actually pr- I might have 75. Yeah, you would have thought. And you know biologics. So traditional biologics can have a plus minus of 40%. Wow. So you get something at 60%. Whereas it's 140%. That's basically double dose yep. um, in reality. And this is why I think you can see um, in some cases, I'm not saying it all, such variability. What I do know is because of the stringent nature of their manufacturing, um, there is a very, very narrow window of uh, difference in the lot-to-lot variability with Latibo. Mm-hmm. I do know that Allegan's main manufacturing at Westport in, uh, in the Republic of Ireland, again, has very, very strict uh, release batch uh, criteria. And that's very important. Um, but that's where your variability and your compar- or your inability to compare Spaywood to Botox unit, to Latibo unit, to Inco, et cetera, et cetera, um, coming from that assay. Then what they do is they look at something like a mouse um, hemidiaphragm, phrenic hemidiaphragm uh, assay. And there's variability in that as well. And they're using an EMG action potential to just determine when you can get full neutralization or not of the hemidiaphragm and paralysis. Um, but again, that's subject to temperature, size, the observer the injector, their technique, there's so many variations. That's why we need statistics always to look at the the distribution and determine, well, 
let's try and get a narrow fit. But I think you're right. We need to be looking at the manufacturers and say, look, you need to keep this very tight. And this may, at least in part, uh, explain some of the variability that we see in patients. Mm. Um, to our knowledge, Latibo have only done trials so far on, on the Gobella complex region. Do you know if there's any trials that are in the pipeline or coming focusing on, say, crow's, crow's feet or any other areas? So the amount of money that's required to do any clinical trial runs into many millions. Yeah. We know that. Mm. We know also that Botulax has been uh, tried and tested in multiple areas beyond the glabella complex, for lateral cantal and frontal mm. I'm absolutely sure that following, and this will always happen before major uh, investment in a clinical trial is conducted, is a pilot study would be done before you embark on a major trial on crow's feet or uh, uh, the front frontal lines. It will happen. Uh, when that will happen, I think we'll be subject to the market uptake of any toxin that's new to a, a major uh, um, uh, region, such as Australia or the United States. And then with that revenue stream created, I'm sure then that will lead to natural investment uh, into further on-label use. I mean, you see that with uh, Allegan, who have expanded their indication of use to the use of uh, in chronic migraine and beyond. And it's good. And that's what we need. We need, we need even off-label use to, to be factored into more on-label use in the future because it protects the clinician and the patient. Can I ask, I know every patient is different and, you know, different dosing, different patterns, et cetera. But if you, if you could sort of give an arbitrary therapeutic dose for each area. Can you give us a rough ballpark? Because this is, again, you know, we've got Latiba here in Australia and everyone knows, oh, okay, mm. it's it's around 20 for, for glabella because that's what the studies show yeah. for, for mild yeah. to severe lines. But what about frontalis, crow's feet, and maybe even off-label so, areas? Yeah, so off-label use in uh, frontalis, I would use... Around 16 to 18 units in frontalis. I use 20 units uh, in the glabella complex. I don't vary between male and female. Lateral canthus on either side, you're using between 9 and 12, uh, so divided into three, three injection points. Um, if you're treating the lower face, such as the depressor angulioris, You've been using four units aside. Mm -hmm. If you're doing something like a masoteric reduction, so it's not true bruxism, so you're not having to inject uh, the temporalis, I would be using between about in divided doses between the two sides, a total of between 60 and 70 uh, units. Mm -hmm. um, if you're doing platysma, it depends on how large the platysma is. If you're treating the nephrotiti line, Nephrotiti line, each injection point, I use uh, four units generally. So there'd be three, then the DAO. So three of four, so that's 12, plus the DAO, that's another four. So you've got a total of uh, uh, 16 on either side. You may wish to inject the mentalis if that's involved. If you're looking at platysma, each point, I'd be injection, injecting around two units 
per injection point in a very dense area of the platysma, four. If I'm going right down to the collarbone, two uh, per point. Um, if you're injecting the uh, nasalis, be two to four. Mm-hmm. If you're doing the levita um, labii superior side, between two and four on either side, and you okay. may want to divide that as a single or uh, or two injections, so two or, or two two on either side. Um, if you're doing a lip flip, one unit on each point, just lateral to the um, filtrum, so you know a few millimeters lateral, and then to the midpoint of the lip on the upper lip border. Um, that's generally what I do if you're doing bunny lines, four units aside. Um, but that that probably covers most of what you need to be using the face for. If you're doing mentalis, if you have a very dappled uh, uh, texture to the chin, I would be using three injection points if it's wide, and you'd be doing two units each, so midpoint and either side, and you'd be doing that superficially. So, and if you're trying to um, reduce uh, intrinsic mentalis activity deeper, then you can use four units and put that in the midpoint. Well, that was really interesting because everything that you said apart from frontalis is, I would imagine, what every injector in Australia is broadly doing. But I think everyone's underdosing frontalis. Um, yeah, this is completely Probably. anecdotal. But if 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 I asked a hundred injectors in Australia who I knew what what's your rough dose in a forehead, they would say between eight to ten, maybe twelve, but not sixteen, eighteen. And that is the area that I believe patients are, are seeing that's sometimes underdosed and coming back saying, "Hey, it didn't work." So that's been really, really valuable. I mean, are you using similar doses? And remember, with- you've got a hot climate, Jane. You've got a hot climate out there, so. With that, generally toxin doesn't last as long. And uh, it was uh, the eminent Professor Goodman who said um, that on his analysis, he wrote a paper on premature aging of women in Australia versus women in the West. And it's, it's frightening to learn because of the level of sun damage that they could prematurely age by about 20 years plus. Yeah over their age-related counterparts. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely see that. But I, I guess the counter-argument to that is the crow's feet seem fine, glabella seems fine, but frontalis, it's where the patient perceives it as not working. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, mm. or maybe it just toned it down. Yeah, And you get, you know, understandably a defensive injector saying, I don't like this product. It's not working for me. I'm going back to what I used to use. So mm. I just think it's a dose issue. Um, and I'm not saying every patient yeah. needs 18 units or or 16 units, but don't be scared yeah. to sort of try do something different. If it's not working, maybe it's not the product that 25 million vials of Latibo <laughs> were, yeah. were sold by. Yeah. I think injectors in general are very defensive in that area and tend, tend to underdose. May I ask, Professor... What products do you use in your clinical practice? Do you have a mixed bag with a, a whole assortment of weapons that you pull out? And, and if so, what are your determining factors on which ones you use when? Are you saying which toxins? Which, which toxins, neurotoxins? yes. Yes, sorry, yes, neurotoxins. Yeah, yeah, neuro- neurotoxins. So my mainstay neurotoxin, my go-to is Latibo. Then it would be uh, Nuceva or Prabotulinum. 
then it would be uh, ona botulinum, so Botox. And um, in some patients, I'll use um, Dysport or Azalur. Mm-hmm. So that would be my mainstay. And what, what choice is generally some patients will specifically request a particular one. If I've got patients who are new to toxins, so naive, natibo straight away, if I'm converting them, if they've used previously Inco or, or Botox, I put them on uh, Latibo. Or in some cases, if they prefer to stick with uh, Latibo or Prabotulinum, I will use that. So I have that capacity to vary, but my mainstay would be Latibo, then it would be Ona and Prabotulinum, and then lastly, Disport or right. and I and, and I will say this, if I'm doing a hyperhidrosis treatment, for mm. example, my two that I would generally move towards would either be Latibo or Disport. If I'm doing something like a masoteric reduction, I would use something like uh, Onobotulinum, generally, uh, and then Latibo, because more of the clinical trial data is based on Onobotulinum. Mm. So. I, I feel a bit more comfortable in that sense. But it was also because you're sort of uh, looking at the, you know, the property of that toxin. So, you know, we, we typically think that disport tends to have a greater um, spread. So it makes sense if you can do hyperhidrosis to maybe choose that toxin or, or is that not what you're thinking? Yeah, I, I, I think it's based, uh, I, I see what you're saying, Jake, but it's mainly based on some of the clinical trial data. Uh, when you talk about spread, you have to be very, very careful because Doris Hanksel, who published a lot of the, the work, showed that the spread wasn't due to complexing protein differences. It was due to primarily concentration. Right. And if you look at the field paper, when they compare the amount of toxin per vial uh, and you look at a standard treatment such as an upper limb dystonia, lower limb dystonia, or glabella complex treatment, the amount of neurotoxin that you are injecting within 10 spaywood units, for example, is more than the equivalent, say, two and a half times less of onobotulinum botox. But when you look at the amount of neurotoxins, so that's in nanograms, there's it a higher level. So I think that probably will explain why they may be a greater level of spread, as you say, um, as opposed to any other reason. Okay. Uh, also, I'm I'm more inclined to look at toxins which I can control and reconstitute myself. So uh, I'm fully in control of it, um, particularly, and that's where I think um, Elysian's, uh, which is already a standard concentration when using it in certain areas where you want to maybe use a more hyperdiluted um, situation, then you're going to have to go off label anyway. So um, I I just choose the latter because I'm I'm used to the conversion rates etc. that I've used in the past. Yeah, such a good point. Um, you mentioned complexing proteins, and we haven't really t- spoken about the protein load with Latibo versus some of the other toxins. And you sort of said right at the start, I don't know if we were off camera, but you were talking about you know you. you the rates of resistance or lack of rates of resistance. So what is the, you know, 
clinical trials do they show that latibo is the same as onobotulinum toxin or or you know would you choose zeomin in certain patients just what's your take on resistance i guess is my question yeah so when you're looking at complexing proteins so both latibo uh ona so botox disport uh abo all have complexing proteins okay but they differ between them. They're not the same proportions, orientation, but you have what are called uh, non-toxin-associated uh, uh, proteins and uh, hemagglutinins. So they, in, in nature, they were used, uh, they are used by the Clostridium uh, bacillus to protect it from gastric acid uh, uh, digestion and breakdown. Uh, in the manufacturing process, uh, whether you look at different forms of complexing protein-associated neurotoxins, many of them are like-for-like, -like, with the exception of INCO, which is devoid of it. But what INCO uses is human serum albumin in a larger quantity, about one milligram, versus 0.25 milligrams in uh, the other types. Human serum albumin itself can bring about uh, neutral antibodies. So you can get sensitized to that. What is very important to understand also in human serum albumin is that uh, it's not recombinantly made. It's from pool blood. Yeah. So you have an issue there. So for me, that's an important one that is like the elephant nobody ever talks about. <laughs> but in terms of uh, neutralizing antibodies with the study with Latibo, when you measure uh, neutralizing antibodies, you look at different ways of doing it. One is with an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, which isn't the most accurate way of doing it. Another one is looking at protein-protein interaction, so antibody binding to the, the toxin protein. And the, that's the gold standard uh, in protein-protein um, uh, interaction studies. And they used uh, what's called the plasma surface resonance system biform. So it releases a tiny electrical activity when they bind. And it is so finite. You can look at the most infinitesimal interactions. Mm -hmm. And they found no neutralizing antibodies at all. Um, phrenic, uh, uh, we've talked about the phrenic hemidiaphragm model. They can use that to, to test for neutralizing antibodies in sera. Uh, and as I said, the ELISA study. But when you look at studies by Fabry and others where they looked at 8,500 patients and they looked at the number of neutralizing antibodies evident. What was the frequency? It was so small, but it generally was found in patients who had long-term high-dose um, neurotoxin being used from an early age, uh, where their immune systems were maturing, as it were. They are more to developing neutralizing antibodies. Uh, so those are the patients with uh, dystonias, cerebral palsy, etc., etc. In the aesthetic arena, it's hardly seen at all. Uh, though there have been papers comparing and contrasting. I remember a paper from, uh, it was actually a Mertz-sponsored um, paper, where they looked at, I can't remember the numbers, I think it was 355 in each group. And they looked at complexing protein as one group 
versus non-complex in protein. But what they did was interesting. They lumped everybody together. So patients were getting ONA, some were getting ABLE. That's not particularly scientific. You need to keep them separate because they could get sensitized to other things um, uh, apart from that. Because it wasn't statistically significant when they kept them separate, but when they pulled the data, there was some level of significance. But the the report was uh, such that it would mean that about 20%, if not 15% of all of our patients would not, would not have any clinical effect. Now, that's not what we see in clinical practice. There have been millions and millions and millions and millions of treatments, and the frequency of neutralizing antibodies reported are minimal. Yeah. And if you go into an audience in a, a major conference and ask them, put your hand up, how many have you seen in your clinical practice? You'll get a handful. Why is that? And the reason is, if you have neutralizing antibodies, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have no clinical effect, because that's what the studies were showing. 50% of patients <clears throat> that had no neutralizing antibodies that didn't have a clinical effect had it for another reason. What was that reason? Is it genetic polymorphisms? Is it the fact that the patients have been on antibiotics and not explain themselves? Could it be poor injection technique? As we know, that can have a big variation. Could it be a a problem with the cold chain? Could it be this lot-to-lot variation that we've described? There's so many scenarios. It's too oversimplistic to look at it like that, because if that was the case, then onobotulinum wouldn't be holding 80% of the toxin market as we speak, yeah. because that's that has complexity proteins in it, which we all know. So bottom line, very rare, and there's there's no real no real issue. Yeah, perfect. And you can take apart, and you can take about half of those studies by the way in which they were conducted, the temperature of the room, the ELISA kit. I've done all of those sort of studies as a as a postdoc fellow in in the states, and I know how the variability arises. So you can one day you can get an experiment that works, another one it doesn't work, <laughs> and then I it's very sad to see. I remember a colleague who's, he was a vet, and he repeated this particular experiment eighteen times over one year, and got no result. And it wasn't until he presented the paper that we all started looking, and we thought, oh gosh. But he's using that particular antibody with this type of sephiros to just bind and pull down. It's the wrong one. Mm. And he was never told. And that's why it never worked. Gosh. So a lot of injectors will be listening to this and thinking, this sounds great. I might want to try Latibo. This is all very reassuring (laughs) that it's a quality product. But a lot of them will will be facing the challenge of how do you explain it to your patients? Or how do you, I don't want to use the word convince, but educate them mm. on potentially why this might be a toxin that they might want to try or convert to. So do you have any tips for how to do this? How did you do it with your patients? going to just add to, to David's um, point. I mean, you, you have a patient who, who yeah. you might have seen a number of times. Of course, they're, they're not toxin naive, so maybe it's a little bit of a different conversation. But really, from the patient's perspective, they're like, well, I've been happy numerous times mm. why why would i want to even if you're saying this thing is good so i'm just curious to know what you said to your patients you know when you first mm. started with latibo so the first thing that i was that i specifically looked at was it, 
is this patient or has this patient been prone to a brow drop? So that's one of the things I quickly say, right, most likely not going to give you that. I can't guarantee it, but I think there's a high likelihood that wouldn't happen. And that's a big seller because a lot of them hate that. And for three months, they're not happy and they may not come back. Um, secondly, um, I look at whether it's a male or female patient. And if it's a male patient that's had a particular toxin, I explained to them that this has been evidence-based, it's on label, that that uh, may or may not convince them or uh, may, uh, want, may sort of trigger them to potentially try it. Um, the other is when you're looking at a broad age range. So particularly when I'm looking at older female patients, um, it's something that I say, well, this is on label. It's been tested uh, rigorously. Uh, Whilst we've used off-label use uh, in the past, this may suit you better. And um, I think it's worth trying. And I leave it to the patient to make the decision at the end of the day. I don't try to um, push them into one or the other. I give them all the facts and then allow them to make an educated decision and an informed decision based on their consent. And if they choose to go one way or the other, that's fine. but what often happens that I find is that patients talk and they've said, well, I've had that um, and I really liked it. And then you'll find that their friend or colleague will come back and say, look, uh, X, Y, Z had this. Um, I, I think I, I'll try. And that's what generally has happened. And the number that I using it has expanded over time. I mean this in the least controversial way, because I'm the same as you, I'm a trainer, keypin leader, whatever you want to call me, but do you declare to your patient, do you say, look, hands up, there may be some inherent bias here, because I'm talking for the company, I'm paid by the company, however, in my experience, you know, I'm really happy so far. Do you you ever talk about that? Absolutely. Always tell them. So, um, fortunately, I've been able to speak for a number of companies, so, and I was speaking to, I won't name her, um, but a colleague within uh, Allegan who was fantastic. And she said to me, I actually want to see key opinion leaders who look at different products. Yeah. For me, they're more experienced. And um, at the end of the day, their, their opinion will be more valuable to me than otherwise. And I think patients also view that. And I will always say, I will rigorously examine whatever I'm using. And if it's not good enough, it won't be put in front of you as a possible suggestion anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally reasonable. Here in Australia, you know, Lutibo has launched, what, a few months ago now? Yeah. It, it, it's certainly um, enticing in terms of its cost, you know, for the, for the injector to buy. So is that the same in the UK? I don't know if you can give us a cost or, or a price. Yeah, depending on which uh, pharmacy it's purchased from and your the degree of your bulk order, it can range about £54 per vial. Wow, that is cheap. 50-unit vial, 50-unit vial. And that compares well with some of the other toxins, which would be in the 60, mid-60 or £70 or £72 mark. Right. So... It's quite a difference there. So as much as uh, 40%. So that, that over time, I mean, some of my colleagues 
are mainly doing neurotoxins. So when you start to add up the numbers, mm. uh, some of them can avoid having to inject for a whole day in a month because of, of that without compromising the impact on their patients. Yeah. Uh, so it gives them more time to spend with their family, do other things. So in terms of giving you a bit more flexibility, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. And do you charge your patients the same price for all your toxins or is it varied depending yeah. on which ones? Yeah. Yep, same. Yeah. Irrespective of whichever toxin, we, we yeah. just keep it standard prices. I think it's that's, easier to follow. Yeah. That's actually a really good question because – Again, I don't yeah. know why, but a lot of Australian injectors are sort of dabbling. Oh, it's cheaper. Maybe I make it cheaper to sort of create mm. a, a, a point of difference. You yeah. know, and, th- and this is why yeah. I'm offering you a new toxin to my patients. Yeah, I might just before you jump in, uh, Professor, I might just add something from a business perspective. Though the people that do that, you just need to be aware of the rod that you're continuing to make for your own back. We've we've had discussions on the podcast infinite times around the challenge of not wanting to commoditize what we do or having patients perceive they're paying for a product as opposed to a service and your skill. So as soon as you start going down that path, which is a very difficult one to walk back from, (laughs) you do put yourself in in a very compromised position in terms of almost degrading your skill because you're charging patient different prices for what should be the same outcome with a different product. So sorry, Professor, you can continue. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's why I keep the price the same because there's a full consultation process, there's follow-ups, they're all part and parcel. And sometimes you're going to spend a lot of time with your patient, sometimes only a matter of moments. Um, you're, you have to review the, the photographs, take the photographs, all of that. And they may wish to speak to you uh, either by phone, uh, the web, or in attendance if there's an issue or whatever it may mean, they may need an additional tweak. All of that is incorporated into the price. We don't charge anything in addition beyond that. So it's a service, as you as you rightly put, and it encompasses all aspects. Yeah. And maybe just one final analogy just to further drive home that point if it hasn't already sunk in. If you buy a piece of art, you're not paying the artist for the type of paint they're using. You're paying them for the beauty of what they've created or their artistic skill. And I think we should be, as someone that's not a practitioner but has a lot of um, admiration for people like yourselves that do this, is that um, we should be valuing or you should be valuing the skill and the artistic integrity of what it is that you do. I demand you call me uh, Picasso from now on. <laughs> I'll, call you, I'll call you something else. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's, Picasso's not good if we're thinking of faces. Yeah. But anyway, bad analogy. Yeah. Um, one last thing, I know this is sort of... Uh, bit of a quirk of being in Australia, but from the UK and I've seen both markets and just curious to get your your take on it, having looked at all the studies and work for different companies. But in the UK, you guys charge per area generally. Here in Australia, we charge per unit. And, um, you know, Michael Caine had his own thoughts. Other practitioners got their own thoughts. I've got my own thoughts. But what do you do in, in, in your practice? But also, what, what do you think of like the converse, the the other argument? I think it's what you're used to and what your patients are used to. We traditionally and have always done uh, per area. Uh, it's straightforward, simple. Uh, charging per unit, yes, you can do that. Um, I don't see an issue with it, though it's quite time-consuming uh, when you're going through it. And patients will say, well, last time you did this and 
this time you've used a few more units. Why did you do that? How much more has that cost me? Why, you know, and it can, it can create a lot more confusion and it is much more time consuming to, to assess and equate and cost that way. I think, um, if you're doing a specific procedure, whatever it might be, lower face neurotoxin, platysmon, nephrotetanine, what it might be, you should know roughly what sort of concentration and amount of toxin you're going to be using anyway. And that should be reflected in the, the price that you would be charging. If you're going to need to use more for whatever reason, you should explain that to the patient and say, this is what we would do as standard. However, because of X, Y, Z, I'm going to need to use more toxin and th- there would be this additional cost. That that I can see as a way of introducing part of that. Um, though from the starting point, we always use an area or a treatment that we're going to do and cost it accordingly and know approximately the range of toxin that we would be using. I'll tell you why we do it in units in Australia because it's bloody expensive. The, the product is genuine. No, it's true because I, I can tell you the prices, but it's much more valuable per unit. And therefore, we kind of have to know how much is going in to justify mm. pricing and, and, and what we're yeah. selling. Whereas, you know, £54, I think you said, for a vial of Latibo. Yeah, for 50 units. Yeah. Who, who gives a crap if you add an extra four or minus two? It, it, it kind of becomes a bit silly. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know how much it costs in your neck of the woods. It's about four but, times um, that. Four times that. No, Maybe even five. So. So I it can is, understand why you <laughs> yeah. would why you would do that for sure. It's like gold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That would make economic sense to to check the, the units. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when when you spill a little yeah. bit, you're you you know, it's like you've, you've crushed you've completely ruined your day. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or that bubble gets into yeah. the syringe and you're trying to flick it out and then oh gosh, there's a few drops. Oh, there's five dollars on the floor. Out. Oh damn. <laughs> exactly well that's been a fascinating conversation so we we really appreciate your time and your wisdom and i've learned uh, a lot actually so thank you again i would love to um maybe for our patrons if you could maybe draw us the 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 forehead pattern that you're describing um maybe on one of your patients today your wife or yourself whoever just just we get some idea of your pattern and what you were describing i think that'd be really useful yeah and just uh flick it through to us and we'll post it to our private patreon group which is contains about 220 230 very keen practitioners from around the world and so eager for more happy to do that that'd be great that'd be fantastic happy to do that um have you been to australia before are you coming are you going to be at any of our events i i helped uh, launch latibo in australia and melbourne and perth Uh, it was a really uh, energy sapping uh, <laughs> sort of uh, commute there. Yeah. Um, I got pretty bad jet lag. It's a shame I didn't get to see enough of Melbourne. Perth was beautiful with the weather. Melbourne had a few storms. I really wanted to see more, but I was exhausted. Yeah, yeah. I had to give about six, seven lectures. But I, I'd love to come again. I've given a few webinars, and uh, uh, you know, I've got some very good Australian friends here. Uh, and in uh, and in Australia themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully yeah. soon. Uh, but I'll gear myself up for that. Yeah, uh, long haul. Well, you've got two uh, more. Commute. You've got two more friends here now, so you'll have to come to Sydney because 
going to Australia without coming to Sydney is like going to the UK without going to London. So yeah. you're gonna ha- you have to come. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> I hear the weather is fabulous most of the time. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, you've got a lovely coastline. It's a few more hours. Uh, further uh, east uh, from Melbourne. So it's, uh, about an hour, it's about an hour and a half flight. It's not too bad. Well, when you're jet lagged to crap, it doesn't That's matter two bad. more hours. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you'll, you'll love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Saeed. We really appreciate it. And, and uh, take care. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Take care, guys. See Have you later. Day. Thank you. Bye-bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.